want to begin this morning with a test. If I were going to make a comment to Larry after that, what would I say? Still waiting for that CD. All right. You, you, everybody got an A. <laughs> well, it's a joy to be with you. Last Sunday I was at uh, Cornerstone Family Church being a part of the installation of new leaders. You know, as I sat there, I thought, boy, I'm glad I'm a part of Tulsa Christian Fellowship. <laughs> it's a wonderful church, wonderful people, but I just thank God that I'm here. Uh, a lot of our folks are gone today, but some of us are here. <laughs> but it really is. It's just a wonderful blessing of being a part of this particular family. You know, even the worship styles, they have marvelous musicians, volume so high I couldn't even hear myself sing. And uh, the, not that that's wrong, but it sure isn't right for me. I believe one way we experience koinonia is when we blend our voices together in singing and we encourage each other as we blend our voices. And I'm not comfortable in a setting where the volume's so loud I can't hear you sing, much less myself. But uh, not that that's wrong, but it's just not right for me. I, I'm so thankful that I'm a part of this body. This morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. These verses, these two verses that we just read, express the underlying theme of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And as we read through this epistle, the, notice we'll be seeing how these verses so clearly express that, because the theme is God's glorious church. The final chapter of Ephesians contains some very personal comments that Paul makes, and some personal exhortations. But in all the rest of the epistle, regardless of what Paul writes about, regardless of the truths that he expressed, in every case he ties them up as if they were referring to the church. And that's the continual pattern that he has in this letter. So the focus of this letter of uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians is God's glorious church. And as an aside, notice that as Paul speaks of this, he continually points to the Father. Throughout the epistle, he does that. The first person of the Godhead, the Father, and the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, is also mentioned, but he focuses on the glory of the Father. Before we begin this morning, let's focus a little bit on what Paul means by the word church. We've talked about this before, but just to refresh our memory, the Greek word ekklesia that we translate church was the word that was originally used for the Greek uh, cities in which when the city council met, the city council consisted of all the citizens. And so when there was to be a meeting of the citizens, a town crier would go through the city and would call the citizens out of the population to this meeting. In the population, there would be tourists, there would be 
slaves, there'd be merchants who were in town to do business, but the citizens were called out of that general population into this meeting. And that meeting, therefore, was called the Ecclesia. It was the assembly of the called-out ones. By the time the New Testament was written, that sense of called-out had transitioned more just to focus on assembly. And so Ecclesia in New Testament times really meant assembly. We see that in Acts chapter 19, in which the Apostle Paul had aroused much opposition because people were accepting Jesus Christ and they'd stopped buying the idols that the idol makers were making. And so the idol makers got very upset and they caused a riot to be raised up in Ephesus. And the Ephesian citizens rushed into the amphitheater and they began to cry out about this and cry out about that. And others were confused, said, we don't have any idea why we're here, but this is just a wonderful riot. And so they were all participating. And uh, then the, you remember the government official got up and said, brothers, uh, this is a dangerous ecclesia, a dangerous assembly you citizens are having. He said, this is unlawful, and therefore I dismiss it, and if you have any complaint, it can be dealt with later in a lawful ecclesia, in a lawful assembly. And so we see that by the time the New Testament is written, the focus of that word ecclesia, although the sense of called out ones was still behind it, the main focus was upon the assembly. The assemblies of God today, what they have done is just translated the Greek word ecclesia. Instead of using the word church, they use assembly, and they got it right. The assemblies of God are the ecclesiae uh, to theu, the assemblies of God. But when we look at the world today and the church world today, it's really confusing, isn't it? I frankly this morning was tempted to talk about that, but I won't because that will miss the point. But we see Roman Catholicism, we see the Orthodox churches, we see all the morass of Protestantism and all the divisions, and we have to say, what's the church? We're not going to talk about that, although we're tempted to. (laughs) Uh, But uh, what is the church? Locally, it is a gathered group of believers in Jesus Christ who are bonded together in mutual commitment. Internationally, it refers to the worldwide collection of all of the assemblies who in their various localities gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say it's difficult today as we look at that of all the confusion, but this morning let's just focus upon that word as it would apply to us at Tulsa Christian Fellowship. And we can say beyond doubt that TCF is at least one expression of God's glorious church. So as we start reading through the Ephesian epistle, the first reference that we find Paul making to the church is a metaphor, and he describes the church as a body under the authority of the head, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 18-23. The the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, 
which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Paul used that same metaphor two other times in the epistle, in 2.16 and 3.6. Now think about this. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the second member of the Godhead. What does incarnation mean? It meant that this divine Spirit... The Son of God came into the world through the virgin birth and inhabited a body. And so for 33 and a half years, that Spirit was incarnated in that body, which was Jesus. And of course, after the resurrection, had a glorified body. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was not just His body that was crucified. Because he suffered not only physically, but he also suffered in spirit. We cannot divorce our bodies from ourselves, can we? When my leg hurts, I hurt. I remember sitting with uh, Joanne Farah some years ago, talking with her when she was dealing with cancer. And she said this, when, when pain is intense, it becomes your Lord. And she regretted that because she wanted Jesus to be her Lord. But she said, when pain is intense, it dominates your life. It becomes your Lord. We cannot separate our bodies from our inner being. We are a unified person, body, soul, and spirit. And you know, the resurrection expresses that truth, doesn't it? That in God's eyes, no human is complete without a body. Our bodies are part of who we are. Jesus Christ came into the world as an incarnate spirit, the spirit incarnated in a physical body. But notice this today, as we read this passage, we see that Christ's body today is the church. Jesus Christ is incarnated in the church today. And whatever happens to the body happens to him. You remember when Paul was traveling to Damascus to arrest Christians? And he had this tremendous experience. Suddenly he was surrounded by a bright light. And there was a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now that was a striking statement. Saul had never, ever even seen Jesus. He had never met Him. How could he be persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting Jesus because he was persecuting the church. Time and time again references that as Paul even speaks of his history. Acts 8.1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, speaking of Stephen. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud, loud 
lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he put them in prison. And later, looking back on that time, he said every time Christians were arrested and they were brought into the courts, he said, I voted for capital punishment. I voted that they would be killed. So every time the Apostle Paul persecuted the church, he was persecuting Jesus Christ. The church today, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, is Christ incarnated in this world. It is important that the church always reflect the person of Jesus Christ in everything we do and everything that we say. The church is Christ incarnated today. He is the head. He is the fullness of all, as this particular passage says. The second statement made about the church is, well, actually three metaphors. In chapter 2, verse 19, the metaphor of a family the metaphor of a commonwealth in which we have citizenship and then a temple. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, the commonwealth where we have citizenship, and are of God's household, the Greek literally says family, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now it's interesting, and we've mentioned this before, the two Greek words that are translated temple, one is hieron. Hieron means the building, the environs. But the second word, naos, refers to that special room inside the temple, which in the Jewish temple was where uh, the Ark of the Covenant rested, the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God resided in that, that room in the temple. That's the word that is used consistently in the New Testament to describe the Christian as we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a Holy of Holies. The local church is a Holy of Holies. The worldwide church is a holy of holies wherein dwells the Holy Spirit. But the point that Paul is making in this passage, if you read the verses that lead up to what we read this morning, the point that he is making in this passage is that in God's church there is no such thing as race. In God's church there is no such thing as culture. But we are all one. Notice Ephesians 2.12. Remember, you were at that time, speaking of Gentiles, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, that he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. 
my ancestors uh, were Cherokee, German, and Scott-Irish. And I am Jim Garrett. <laughs> and I'm neither German, nor Scott-Irish, nor Cherokee. <laughs> I am Jim Garrett. All these are blended into this being that constitutes Jim Garrett. And you know, that's the way the church is in God's eyes. It's really sad to hear a report from Carl Eason, who was being a representative of Voice of Martyrs in various churches in Tulsa. And he said he went to one particular church to talk about the Voice of Martyrs and suffering Christians around the world and ask if he could come and give a talk about this. And the pastor said to him, I don't care about that unless what you're doing is promoting something of our race in Tulsa, I'm not interested. How sad. And he said he encountered that twice as he went around trying to get appointments to talk about the voice of martyrs. Now certainly, we who have in our city many cultures, there's nothing wrong with this culture expressing its Christianity in its culture, and that culture expressing its Christianity in that culture, but when our culture becomes our identity, rather than our identity in Christ Jesus, culture is out of place. And it's very sad today to see that still we have problems among races, and even cultures within races that just can't be united in the person of Jesus Christ. Jokingly, I've said, and yet there's a degree of truth in it, uh, I'm an Okie. Now, I grew up in an Oklahoma that was Southern culture. And true Oklahomans have never viewed Tulsa as a part of Oklahoma because Tulsa was built by the oil barons who had as a goal of creating an eastern cultured city. And when I grew up, Oklahoma, Tulsa was known as that's where the Catholics and Republicans lived. And Oklahoma was largely Democrat and Baptist. And I thought it's interesting, in the sunset years of my life, and I say growing up in a southern culture, God has united me with four Yankees, a Finn, and a Tulsan. But so what? <laughs> See, that's a beautiful thing. We, we don't even notice it. And I, I, I am very patient at times with my brothers. But uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing when we can come together in Christ Jesus and be that one new man in which these things are non-existent. How wonderful if, if that could really happen across the board in everywhere. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5.16 Therefore, from now on, we, rec we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, and if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The third reference to the church in the epistle to the Ephesians is not a metaphor but a prayer and a description, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice this is a striking statement. The reason that Paul acknowledges the appropriateness of unceasing praise to God the Father lies both in the church and in the Savior, Christ Jesus. That's something to think about it. We say, oh yes, we understand glory to God because of... But Paul says, in the church as well. Paul assumes two things. That there's glory in the church and there's glory in Christ Jesus. And so we praise and thank God this morning. You know, that's a striking statement, isn't it, when we consider the constituency of the church. Paul said, not many, mighty, and so on. He wrote about that. And I just think, you know, as you flip through this church directory, Paul and Vicki Burgard, Bruce and Lynn Clutter, Carla Diaz, Melinda Kwangdo and Jung Hee, Jim and Diana Downey. You know, just flip all the way through Bill and a bunch of ragtag folks. And, and I'm the most ragtag of all. <laughs> But look around. Uh, it's hard for us to look at ourselves and say there's some kind of glory on us, isn't it? That's hard to see. And yet Paul said there is. And this is something that's seen in the heavenlies that we don't always see among ourselves. What a beautiful thing to realize that regardless of where our station is in life, regardless of what our social level is, regardless of what kind of clothes are in our closets, we come together in this assembly and regardless of, of who we are, there is a glory that is an honor to God. Now, here's another interesting thing related to that. Ephesians 3.8, Paul writing, said to me the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice. The heavenly beings, the angels, those who have been involved with God and His purpose throughout creation, didn't really understand what God was all about until the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And so you just kind of hear the angels saying, oh, that's what that was all about when God made that covenant with Abraham. And yeah, now I understand that Red Sea thing and that the law, understand that, that's what it was all about. That's exactly what Paul is saying. All of that was hidden. But now the heavenlies can look at the church and see this is what that was all about throughout all of the history and workings of God throughout the ages. That's something to think about too, isn't it? That the angels look at us in order to understand something about the mind of God. The fourth and final reference to the church in this epistle is another metaphor. 
The church is pictured as a bride, Ephesians 5.24, as the church is subject to Christ. So also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, a wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Although there are important statements made in this section concerning the relationships in marriage, the point that Paul is making in these things he's saying is the church and its relationship with Jesus Christ, the church being his bride. Notice that the work of Christ in this section is emphasized in a way that it was to sanctify the church, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that the church should be, in some versions say, and either one would be correct, without blemish or blameless. You know, every one of us who is in the church has an obligation to do what we can to keep the church holy and spotless. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and following points out the impossibility of being both linked to anything that is an expression of Satan and at the same time being linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have wonderful young people in this church Frankly, I look up to them and many times they are an example to me in godliness. But I also know the devil wants every one of our young people. He will do everything that he can to seduce you young people into his kingdom. And once he gets you, he will mock God. Aha, I got that one. That's what he tried to do with Job, remember? He went before the Lord say, No wonder Job worships you so much. You just bless him all the time. And he was challenging God. Let me have him. I can make him forsake you. Huh. Well, aren't we glad Job didn't, didn't give in and the devil lost? But the devil will do all that he can to seduce, to own, to possess the precious young people we have in this church much less those of us who are older, but especially the young people. And once he gets you, he will mock God. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And I would say to the young people, I know it's difficult in school, it's difficult in your jobs, it's difficult where you are to avoid bad company. But to the degree you can, be in that company, but do not link yourself with it. 
bad company corrupts good morals. And we have the responsibility as part of the church to be holy so the church will be holy. TCF, in obedience to Scripture, we practice church discipline. And when you go through the membership orientation class, that's explained to you. This is how church discipline is exercised at TCF. There are three reasons for church discipline. First of all is to reclaim a sinning Christian. Galatians chapter 6, 1 says, If you catch a brother in a sin, you are spiritual, restore him. And the word catch has the idea of you catch him in the act. And so you do what you can to restore that person. And efforts should be made to do that. But if those efforts fail, then church discipline has to take place. But the effort is to restore. When there was a man in Corinth who was having sexual relationships with his stepmother and the church wasn't doing anything about it, they were almost proud about their liberality, Paul scolded them and told them that they had to put the man out of the church. And they did that. And then later the man repented and wanted to come back. And they were not receiving him. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians had to scold the church. He said, this man has repented. He has come back. He embraced him. Do not let the sorrow that he is feeling over this excommunication destroy him. The purpose of excommunication was to cause that person to be so miserable missing his brothers and sisters. And also so miserable as Satan now had total access to him that he would repent and return. And that's the first reason for church discipline, to try to restore the recalcitrant sinning Christian back to Jesus Christ and to the church. The second is an effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul, writing to Titus, said, If there's a man who's divisive among you, Titus 3.10, warn him once, warn him twice, and if you persist in his factious behavior, then shun him, have nothing to do with him anymore. And church discipline has to be exercised when there's a church member who is sowing disunity or division or any type of seditious activity in the body. It has to happen because we are, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, to do all we can to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And warning about divisive people, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, anyone who destroys the temple of God, speaking of the uh, local church, God will get him. That's a scary place to be, dividing a church. And the third is the effort, as we've already spoken of, to keep the church holy. Because you're a part of the church, when you sin, you stain the church. Remember the situation when the Israelites came to Jericho. And they had this tremendous victory, and they were rejoicing. And there was this little town of Ai over here, and they had to conquer it. And so, not the whole group, but just a contingency of soldiers went, and they should have easily have defeated the city. But instead, the Israelites were totally defeated and Joshua is on his face before God why 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 uh, your name's going to be defamed and in essence the Lord said stop praying get up off your knees there's sin in the camp purge the camp of its sin 
The church is the same way. We have to do what we can to keep the church holy. Let me close with something that some of you have heard me report before. But as we think of the church as the bride of Christ, I think this is appropriate. Some years ago, I was asked to come and help a church that was going through tremendous disunity. The church had a pastor, and the pastor and the elders couldn't get along. As I got involved in this situation, I also found there was a a rising group in the church wanting to take it over. And although I didn't know it, they had planned on Sunday morning to actually come forth and take the microphone away from the preacher and take over the church. The pastor was sexually harassing the church secretary. And here I was in this situation trying some way to bring about God's will. One thing that was a problem was there were all kinds of people in the church that wanted their ministry to be highlighted. And the pastor who was sexually harassing the secretary, I, I said, I, I want you out of the pulpit for six months. We need to deal with this issue. His thing was nobody's taking over my church. I was on my face just crying out to God, what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to do? And I've had very few visions in my life, but this was one of them. The vision began by my seeing a very beautiful bride adorned in a gorgeous, glistening wedding gown. It was beautiful. And then in my vision, I began to see forearms and hands, many of them. And they began to touch the shining garments of the bride. And every time a hand touched a garment, the garment was smudged. And then they became more violent and began to tear the beautiful garment of the bride and then began to grab arms and actually dismember her. And the voice of God said this to me, this is what men do when they care more about their ministry than they do the bride of Christ. What a sobering thought. What a sobering thought. Over the years, often I've been called in to help church situations. But every time I do, I go in fear and trembling. The last thing I ever want to do is leave my fingerprints on the bride of Christ. Look at who we are. (laughs) A bunch of nothings. But corporately in the heavenlies, we're not just a bunch of nothings. We're the assembly of God. We're the bride of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that should not give us one iota of pride. (laughs) But thanksgiving Thanksgiving we can't even express and humility knowing that we are what we are because of the grace of God that has been extended to us. Praise His name.
Thank you, Jim, for sharing that, for reminding us of how corporately we are very special to our Heavenly Father.